why are the supermarket shelves stocked? Why, when you flip the switch, why does why do the lights come on? Why do you press the button? Does the toilet always flush? Um, why, when you go to Amazon, you want to buy a new pair of jeans or a new belt or, or download some music? You can pretty much always do it. And so there must be some inner logic. And that inner logic is a price system that I think no one, no scholar has yet done as much to explain as has Hayek. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Essential Scholars podcast. I'm your host, Rosemary Fike, and today I'm joined by Don Boudreau, and we're going to talk about the ideas of Friedrich Hayek. Don is a professor of economics at George Mason University. He holds the Martha and Nelson Getchell Chair for the Study of Free Market Capitalism at the Mercatus Center. He's a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute and he specializes in globalization and trade. You might know him from his blog, Cafe Hayek, or his regular column in the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. Thank you so much for joining us today, Don. My pleasure to be here, Rosemary. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so Hayek was a pretty big influence on you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about who Hayek was? What are some of the things that influenced his ideas? So I was introduced to Hayek, I think I was a sophomore in college, and I had a semester earlier become fascinated with economics because it helped, learning economics, I had a very good teacher, helped me to understand the uh, gasoline shortages that I experienced as a young, as a, as a teenager uh, in the US. And so I became very interested in economics and I had another teacher who first introduced me to Milton Friedman. And I, I remember talking to him. His name is Bill Field. He's still alive. We're still in touch. And uh, I remember telling Bill Field, he lent me a book that Milton Friedman wrote, collection of Friedman's Newsweek columns. And uh, I, I just devoured it. I remember bringing it back to his office a few days later and, and saying very enthusiastically, oh, Milton Friedman, this is 1977 or 78. And I remember saying, Milton Friedman must be the... And Bill Field, my professor, no, was second greatest living economist. I literally got tingled. So, who, <laughs> Friedman's not the greatest. Who's the greatest? Must, 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 must be a really special person. And he said, Hayek. And that's the first time I heard the name Hayek. And uh, I still recall very clearly Bill Field reaching back to, his, to the bookshelf that he had behind him in his office, grabbed a copy of Hayek's collection, Individualism and Economic Order, off the shelf. And he gave it to me. And he said, Here, read chapter four. You won't understand it all. But you might get enough of it to understand something very profound in it. And chapter four in that book is Hayek's most famous academic article, uh, his 1945 Use of Knowledge in Society piece, which, is, which was originally published in the American Economic Review. And I did indeed uh, read it carefully. I did indeed realize that most of it went over my head, but I grasped that there was something profound in, in, this, in this article. So this is my long-winded way of introducing uh, listeners to... Uh, uh, how I like to think of, of, of Hayek. Hayek was, uh, well, a little bit of biography very quickly. Hayek was born in 1899 in Vienna, Austria. He died on March 23rd, 1992 in Germany. He spent, he was a naturalized British citizen. He spent a good deal of his career also, though, at the University of Chicago at the Committee for Social Thought. 
He won the Nobel Prize, co-won it with Gunnar Myrdal in 1974. Uh, he was certainly one of the most influential economists of the 20th century. Uh, in terms of the philosophy of liberalism, uh, which today a lot of people call libertarianism, he's probably the single most important writer uh, of the past 100 years. Uh, uh, his teacher, one of his, not formal teacher, but one of his mentors was Ludwig von Mises, who was also important in that regard. But Hayek is, is clearly fam most famous in, in, uh, uh, among the general public and among economists as being this great champion of the liberal order. But by the liberal order, Hayek meant that um, a society is far, modern society is far more complex than most of us realize. It looks simple to us, ironically, because it works so well. You know, we go to the supermarket and there's milk and there's wine and there's cheese and there's broccoli. It's there day after day. We don't see all the deep supply webs that help to bring these things to us. We don't see their operations. We don't see the multitude of decision making taking place at each node in that supply web in order to make all of these things routine on a daily basis. And Hayek pointed out from the Austrian economics tradition from which he was trained, Hayek pointed out, look, the society, society wasn't created by anyone. The economy certainly wasn't created by anyone. It evolved into existence and it evolved uh, into a workable and prosperous uh, 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 pr pr existence because it, for some reason in the West, we adopted a series of norms and, 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 and social practices that uh, encourage each of us to pursue our own self-interest, our own purposes, uh, by following certain abstract rules. How you call them abstract rules? When the, the, these, you know, don't, don't, I don't hit you. I don't have to have a particular reason for not hitting you. I just know not to hit you unless you aggress against me. And the same thing, I don't pick your pocket. I don't embezzle your money. Things like this. Governments don't confiscate um, companies' properties just because the government is running a budget deficit. Things like that. So Hayek says when people follow these abstract rules, very gradually there emerges an order that allows each individual within that order to better pursue, not perfectly, but to better pursue his or her own goals. And that any attempt to engineer that order consciously to, to, to somehow make it better uh, will be poisoned by the fact that any of these engineers, no matter how well-meaning, no matter how smart, no matter how many banks of computers they have to work with, cannot possibly grasp the level of detail and the number of details and the nuanced knowledge that every day must be tapped into in order to make this order possible and workable. So Hayek pointing out the great complexity of the modern world, warned against the hubris. He called it a fatal conceit. It's the title of his last book. He called it, a, 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 he warned against this hubris of thinking that we can know what we need to know in order to prove upon what he called the spontaneous order of the, of the market economy. As a young man, and, and, and even as a, you know, approaching an old man now, I find this, message to be both profoundly important as a descriptive, uh, as a description of reality. And I find it to be inspiring as a, 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 a humble warning uh, uh, against what 
what we can do even when we're well-intentioned. So it's it makes sense that you kind of were attracted to Hayek's ideas during the gas crisis in the 1970s because it seems like Hayek would have a lot to say about that. Can you tell me a little bit about that connection? Yes. So um, I, I remember very clearly the first time seeing a supply and demand curve on the chalkboard. This is before I heard the name Hayek. And my professor says, uh, uh, I was 18 at the time. And the professor said, uh, look what happens. Well, she actually said, you remember, pointing to the class, you remember waiting in line to buy gasoline? Of course, everyone in the classroom did, because just a few years earlier, during the fall 1973 gasoline shortage, that was the first nationwide gasoline shortage in the U.S. since World War II. We all did remember. We were, you know, at the time, college students. Then, a few years earlier, we had been high school students. So we all remember. So, yeah. And she said, here's why that happened. And she pointed out that government had in place price controls, price ceilings, kept the price below equilibrium. And this makes so much more sense to me than did the other prevailing explanations. Well, we're running out of oil. The oil companies are greedy. Right? These, are, these are juvenile explanations. But this explanation made a lot more sense. And that's a very simple application of the larger point that Hayek makes. That although the intention of the price ceilings was to make it easier for consumers to get gasoline, make it more affordable, make it more accessible. The consequence was the opposite. We intervened in this very complex market with a well-intentioned uh, uh, intervention, and it messed things up. And so I was primed after absorbing this lesson when the larger, more general lesson that Hayek had uh, was, was, was uh, introduced to me, that, that you know, it's not just prices in markets, so that's important, it's also just the general structure of society. It's, it's, it's really complex, and you have to be very, very careful when you suppose that, that it, because in your mind you have this vision of how you might make things better, uh, society is not a, a mound of putty that, you know, a, a genius sculptor, to change analogies a bit, a genius sculptor can, can improve upon. It's, 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 it's wildly complex um, uh, a system of, 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 of ever-adjusting interactions. And, uh, and so, th th again, that's, that, that's Hayek's deeper message. It appears pretty much in everything he wrote from, from his earliest writings in the 1920s until his last writings in the late 1980s. So in the first chapter of Essential Hayek, you talk about how the world is incredibly complex. And... Uh, one of the things you say is that no one person knows all that is necessary to produce even the simplest items. So if no one knows how to do it, if no one person knows this information, how does this vast network of coordination take place? So, so that, that is the great question. I mean, that is certainly one of the great questions that Hayek addressed. And this was the, the, the answer uh, the, the, an attempt to answer that question was the purpose of this article of Hayek that I mentioned earlier, the use of knowledge in society. So, you know, you know, the famous example, I'm sure many of the listeners know the famous example as well, uh, comes from uh, a foundation of economic education founder, Leonard Reed. He wrote a famous article in December of 1958 called I Pencil. And he points out very simply that, you know, that, that something as simple as the modern day pencil is pretty mundane, uh, commonplace, largely unchanging item, it is so complex that the amount of knowledge that's necessary to make this pencil is so vast that no one person 
can have it. You need to know how to, you know, because it's made with tools, you need to know how to, uh, where to find iron ore, how to get the iron ore out of the ground, uh, where to find the aluminum, the, the bauxite to make the aluminum ferrule, where to, you know, where to find the, the dyes to make the yellow paint, on and on and on. So no one person can do that. Uh, and of course, what's true, the, the beauty of the pencil story, what's true for the pencil, of course, is obviously much more true for really complex and amazing things like Toyota Camrys and, and, and smartphones and, and, uh, and indoor plumbing. Uh, and so, but, but we have these and we have, we have, we have pencils and indoor plumbing and smartphones, all these things, Toyota cameras, they're all around us. And so something has to make them happen. It's not random chance. Um, and what makes it happen is the price system far more than any other single institution, market prices, prices that are allowed to rise and fall in response to consumer demands and conditions of supply. These prices send out signals to and incentives simultaneously to buyers and sellers telling them how to change their actions uh, to adjust to the underlying economic realities that these changing prices reflect. The example that Hayek gives in the use of knowledge in society, it's a very simple one. It's of, of, of a tin market. Well, you know, if, it, if, uh, the, if a tin mine uh, starts to run dry, the only person that has to know that are the handful of people who work in the tin mine. But, but then they see the tin mine running dry, so they charge a higher price for the tin because it's either more difficult for them to get more tin out of it or there's just less tin coming out of that mine. So the price of tin rises. Well, you're, a, you're a, 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 an automobile producer and you've been using a lot of tin, let's say, to produce parts of your car. Well, now tin is, the price is rising. And so how do you adjust? Well, you say, well, tin's more expensive. So you have it in your interest to switch to some substitutes such as aluminum or some you know, carbon fiber. And so you adjust to that change in what's happening in the tin mine without having any idea why you're adjusting. You're just doing it in your own self-interest. You want to get your cost as low as possible. Um, so that's just one example of how, when, how prices change. So when you take that example, you combine it with all the changing prices, each one of us in the global economy as a consumer and as a producer, we're constantly adjusting what we consume, how much we consume, the things we consume, and what we produce, how much we produce, the particular things that we produce. Sometimes we might even completely switch careers or businesses. All of these changes are brought about most importantly by changes in prices and the corresponding profits and losses that changes in prices bring about. And it's those changes, uh, it's, it's those price signals that create this coordination. My colleagues, uh, Tyler Counter and Alex Tabarrok in their excellent textbook, they describe, I don't know how to get the quotation exactly right, but they describe prices as uh, uh, signals uh, combined within incentives or incentives combined within signals. It, 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 they're, they're simultaneously both. They, 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 they tell me as a consumer, the price of something is, is going up. Oh, you better conserve on that more because it's more scarce. And they also give me an incentive to do that because it, but if I if I choose not to do it, I'm giving up more, and 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 that's against my best interest to 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 give up more if I can find some alternative uh, means of satisfying my my preferences. So it's the price system that brings about this coordination. And as I tell my students, if you doubt it, because uh, it does seem kind, of, you know, it's an abstract story. You can always doubt things. Uh, in fact, I encourage my students to doubt everything I say. Yes, we, sh we should go into, you know, we should ha have a healthy dose, dose of skepticism, uh, although it should never turn into nihilism. But I tell my students that if you doubt this story, say, well, look around you and go to the supermarket and ask, who, who, who wh why is it stocked? Why are the supermarket shelves stocked? 
Why, when you flip the switch, why does the lights come on? Why do you press the button? Does the toilet always flush? Um, why, when you go to Amazon, you want to buy a new pair of jeans or a new belt or, or download some music? You can pretty much always do it. And it's because of the price system. If no one can figure out how to make a pencil, no one can certainly figure out how to design the whole system. And it's clearly not random. And so there must be some inner logic. And that inner logic is a price system that I think no one, no scholar has yet done as much to explain as has Hayek, uh, particularly with this, uh, this article, The Use of Knowledge in Society. That is a great article for any listeners who haven't read it. It's one of those articles that I've read a lot of times and almost every single time I read it, I pick on, up on something a little bit different, a little bit new than I did the previous reading. Yep. Same here. <laughs> yeah. So that makes sense. If prices are so playing such an important role, they're providing us with information that we don't really have access to in the absence of those prices, um, then it makes sense that when the government wants to intervene, even if the intentions are very good, like post-disaster, we want to implement some price controls for very you know, humanitarian reasons, mm -hmm. that what they are doing is messing up the information that consumers and producers need. It's, it's, it, uh, price controls are a system of basic, it's, it's the government telling the market to lie. It's telling the market to send out false information. And when people get false information, of course, they're not going to act as intelligently as when, when they get correct information. The information may be incorrect. I mean, you alluded a moment ago to natural disasters. And so when a natural disaster strikes and, and say liquid propane, is much more scarce because the inventories have been destroyed and the supply lines have been blocked. The, the underlying reality is unfortunate. The inventories have been destroyed and the supply lines have been blocked. But 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 that underlying reality isn't going away just because you 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 just because you you force the market to to lie about it. It, 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 it. The analogy is almost perfect. It would be as if a newspaper sent in a newspaper reporter to a disaster scene and said, you know, our, our readers don't like bad news. So when you go to that, when you go to that site where the hurricane just struck, you know, come back and, 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 and write only good news. And so the reporter comes back and says, well, really what happened is, you know, a lot of people died and the supply lines are down and, and the inventories are destroyed and the newspaper says, no, 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 you can't write that. Write that the supply lines are perfectly fine. The inventories are fine. Well, you could write that. And the readers, when they read it, they may have a, you know, they're not going to suffer the anxiety and anguish of learning the truth. But of course, if you don't suffer the anxiety and anguish of learning a bad truth, then you're not going to adjust to that, that bad truth in the way that, that, that you should. And that's what happens with price controls. Not only do they lie to people by prompting people to then, or, or by denying to people the information that they need to adjust as best as possible to those bad circumstances, makes the circumstances only worse. So price controls are a pretty obvious way that these price signals get messed up because they're obviously not allowed to move. But what are some other interventions that might distort price signals? Well, so, so let me say the price controls are by far the worst. Um, I've learned, this is one of the things that I've learned since I was first introduced to Hayek more than 40 years ago. I've learned that the market is far more robust than I once thought it it was. It can it, 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 to to <laughs> quote an old commercial that most of your listeners won't won't won't, won't get. Uh, it takes a licking and keeps on ticking. Uh, 
It's an old Timex commercial. That was its old phrase. That doesn't mean these interventions are good. It's just that the market has a remarkable ability to, to get around problems. It cannot get around price controls. The, every price control is, it, it can, cannot, price controls cannot be gotten around. So if there's enough of them, the market will collapse if they last long enough. So they're the worst. But there are other interventions, as you point out, that uh, uh, while none of them individually might be as bad as a price control, uh, they, they have similar effects and, and, and they create damages. Uh, uh, so taxes, uh, you know, a reasonable case can be made that, that sometimes the benefits of the revenues gained from the taxes might outweigh the distortionary effect of a tax. But if the government, let's say, puts a, uh, a, a tax on, on Propane. Look, I'll stick with liquid propane. And well, we want liquid propane buyers to pay a pay a tax. Well, that 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 tax sends out an art by, by by compelling the sellers of the propane to charge a higher price and causing buyers to pay a higher price. That tax makes the propane look artificially more scarce than it really is, and so people might use less propane than they really should use compared to some other fuels if there was no tax in place. So that's a small distortion. Again, its benefit, its its cost may be outweighed by the revenues earned by the tax, assuming the government uses those revenues wisely. But it's still a distortion. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, as you know, Rosemary, there's a huge debate in economics about what are and aren't you know best taxes. I don't. It it, it it's one of those searches for the the uh, perpetual motion machine to find a non-distortionary tax. Sometimes people think they find one and, and, and they don't really. I don't think one will ever be found. Some are less distortionary than others, uh -huh. uh, uh, but they do create distortions. Uh, I, I, in my own view, and this is no, has nothing to do with Hayek, although I suspect he would agree, but this is just my own view. I, I, I think that income taxes are, uh, if we're going to have a tax, I think an income tax is a bad tax. And I think a consumption tax would be a better tax. Um, I, I'm, I'm a guy who's pretty much against all taxes, but if I have to choose, I prefer to tax, I think it's a very bad idea to tax productive activity right. and, and income is earned from productive activity. So the higher the income tax, the, high, the more, the greater the burden put on, on productive activity. So, uh, so taxes are one thing. Direct regulations are, are often uh, uh, worse uh, than, than taxes. Um, direct regulations can sometimes be almost as bad as, as, as the price controls. Uh, so, you know, governments prohibiting people from entering a market, uh, prohibiting people from, from leaving a market, governments prohibiting employers from firing workers once those workers have been hired, you know, uh, 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 safety regulations, which look good on their, on their face, can have un, ill unintended consequences. I'll give you one of my favorite examples. I've been rereading lately a lot of the work of my late colleague, Walter Williams, who died suddenly about a year and a half ago. And in his best book, uh, his 1982 book, The State Against Blacks, he cites an article. I forget now where the article is published. Uh, and, and it's in a chapter where Walter is talking about regulation. And uh, he cites an article that studied, that looked at different states in the United States. And different states in the U.S. have different degrees of regulation regarding uh, uh, the, 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 the requirements to sell your services as an electrician. So in some states, 
you have to pass all sorts of incredibly complex exams before you can market yourself as an electrician. Other states are a lot more lenient. And so you'd think, I think the naive person would think, oh, well, uh, the states in which uh, it's more difficult, you know, you have to, you have to, you, it's more difficult to become an electrician where you have to be much more skilled uh, and prove yourself to be much more uh, learned as an electrician. Those are the states where uh, electrical wiring will be safer and there'll be less death and, and damage from, from poorly uh, wired homes and businesses. Well, it's just the opposite. Uh, in states that had very tight and high restrictions on who could practice as an electrician, those are the states where, it, where uh, electrocutions at home were highest and, and the electrical fires were highest compared to states that had less restrictive regulations. You say, well, this is odd. Why would that be so? And so it gets, it, it, once again, we get into prices. In states that make it more difficult for people to set up practice as an electrician, to sell their services as electricians, uh, that raises the price of hiring a professional electrician. So what do you do at home? You, well, it's too, well, let me wire the, let me wire my house myself. And most people who do it themselves uh, know even less than, a, than even a mildly qualified electrician. And yeah. so you get a lot of, of, of do-it-yourself electricians operating at home. And so you get the, un, you get the unfortunate consequences of that. That's just one, one of my favorite examples. So, you know, reg, reg, uh, regulation, another, so in this, this is an example of occupational licensing restrictions, uh, safety, safety regulations uh, at, at workplaces, uh, sometime in, inadvertently hurt, hurt workers by uh, uh, making it more difficult for firms to um, set up because if the safety regulations are too great, then that reduces the number of new employers who might enter an industry and hence reduces the competition for workers and hence reduces uh, workers' pay because the competition for workers is, is modified. Minimum wage legislation, and that's, and that's a price control. It's a price yeah. floor, a price ceiling. Is also, a, in my view, a pernicious piece of, of legislation. It, it, it's very popular because people think, oh, well, the minimum wage, that, that raises the wages of, of low-skilled workers. Well, it raises the wages of low-skilled workers who maintain employment, uh, but it also lowers the wages down to zero of workers who now find that they are unable to find employment at that higher at that higher wage. So there are all sorts of, of interventions, taxes, regulations, price controls that uh, uh, are often meant to do well, that when they encounter the complexity, to return to a Hayekian theme, of reality, wind up doing much more harm than good. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about um, something that you mentioned before, uh, this idea of a spontaneous order. So some of our listeners might not be familiar with what that word means. Um, so can you just give a quick definition of a spontaneous order and then maybe talk about, you know, we know the market's a spontaneous order, but are there other spontaneous orders that we might be familiar with? Yeah, so it's a spontaneous order is uh, an arrangement of actions and expectations, a spontaneous order in, in, in human society. It's an arrangement of actions and expectations that no one designed, but that when people engage with it, uh, they number one, pretty much can predict uh, what the results of their individual actions will be. And that order itself, although not designed, as I said earlier, 
improves the prospect of everyone operating with that order to better achieve his or her ends. So the best example, Hayek used it a lot, and it's because it's a great example. The best example is language. So language obviously improves our ability to communicate. We're using language now. Of course, it's not perfect, and we all often misunderstand things, we mishear people, but obviously we, we humans would be, our, our society would be categorically different if we didn't have language. We're communicating well now. Well, no one designed the English language. There was no great genius in the past who said, hey, let's, let's make the sound chair mean this thing that I'm sitting in, or the, the sound run, or the, or the letters R-U-N mean you know, a description of someone moving fast along the ground, propelled by his or her legs. That was not designed by anyone. Language emerged over the millennia as people heard sounds, came to understand and expect, came to understand what those sounds meant and to expect others to have the same understanding. So today, you and I are using this order, this language order, in order to improve our ability to, to pursue our ends. The particular end that we have here is to share uh, our uh, appreciation of the work of, of Friedrich Hayek. Uh, and, and language is helping us do that. Uh, I suppose we could do it in some other fashion. You know, I, I'm not sure how. Sign. But it we would could be do very... an interpretive dance. We could do it. Well, <laughs> that, believe me, if you'd see me dance, that would that, that, there'd be no interpretation that, that uh, would, would come from that. So that language is an obvious, an obvious mm -hmm. example. Of that, but 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 the market is also an obvious example. No one designed the, the this entire complex process that that gives rise to to pencils and to Toyota Camrys. No one designed that. Uh, people go to work in the morning. They say, "Hey, you know, the price of the the, the wage rate for working on an oil rig that's pretty it's pretty attractive. I think I'll go work in an oil rig so I can help drill oil." That later part, part of parts of which later get refined and turned into the base of, of paint that winds up on the pencil. And someone else says, you know, uh, 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 the, the, the price of graphite is sufficiently high that it pays me to start a company to go find graphite and, and, and uh, 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 refine graphite and sell some of that graphite to a pencil manufacturer who will then mix it with clay in order to make the thing we call the lead, miscalled the lead. That's in the middle of the pencil. So all these individual decisions take place within this spontaneous order of the market. It's an order that is real. We, we, we understand it, right? You, you go to the supermarket, there's an order there. It's not, it's not random. It's not chaos, uh, uh, but it's not designed. And so Hayek, so that we could think of three, three different categories. There are things that are both, uh, uh, both uh, the result of human action and the result of human intention. So if I write a, 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 a love poem to someone, right? I'm, I'm, using, I'm, I'm writing a poem uh, and I intend to inspire the, 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 the woman to whom I give this love poem, intending to inspire her to return in, uh, affection. So I intended to write the poem uh, and I, I designed the poem. The other end, you have, you have things that are the result neither of human action nor of of human design, the cosmos, right? The the the, the way the 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 galaxies and 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 uh, solar various solar systems interact with each other. We didn't design that. It, it's orderly, but you know it has nothing to do with human action. Hayek said one of the most underappreciated parts, but it's a but it's an incredibly central part of human society are those uh, 
results, th th those things we observe that are the, bo both the result of human action, but not of human design. Language is the result of human action. It's not, it's not created by a divinity. Uh, it's not created by the cosmos. It's human act, humans acting and engaging with each other, but no human designed it. And so for Hayek, economics itself was intimately, uh, uh, the, the, the core of economic science for Hayek was to study those orders, um, those market orders that were the that are the result of human action, but not of human design. And I think you may be going there later, but so let me anticipate. Yeah. There's another uh, uh, domain in which this result of human action, but not of human design idea is applicable. And that is in, uh, that's what we call law. Now, most people, not just today, but most people throughout history, and Adam Smith did this, use the term law and legislation as if they are synonymous. Like I say, you know, we talk about people in Congress as being lawmakers. We talk right. about the statute as being you know, well, the, the, the you know, the, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, so-called, is a new law because it's been enacted in, in the United States. Hayek, in his, I think, his greatest political economy work, which is trilogy in, that he wrote in the 1970s, published in the 1970s, Law, Legislation, and Liberty, Hayek distinguished law from legislation. He got this idea from an Italian... Uh, philosopher named Bruno Leone, who was a big influence on him. And Hayek said, look, legislation, however useful it is, is fundamentally different than law. Uh, uh, legislation is designed. Legislation is the conscious attempt by a group of people. Like in the, you can have legislation in a monarchy, in a dictatorship, in a, in, a, in a wonderful democracy. But whenever you have statutes that are designed to, 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 to change the way humans behave. That's legislation, it's design. The, the, the tax code is legislation. Occupational licensing is legislation. You, you may not braid hair if you did not have 1,500 hours of training to braid hair. For good or bad, that's legislation. Hayek said law is different. Law is not legislation. Law is the product of human action, but not of human design. It is those rules that it's a consist of those rules that we just by being a citizen or denizen of the community that we understand most people follow and and, and we ourselves follow them no one designed them uh, a, a, a typical example a very mundane but but telling example is if you um you know, if, if, if there's a if there's a, if there's a popular movie and you go to the you want to go to see the movie and 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 you and you get to the theater, assuming we go to to the extent that we go to theaters these days, you go to the theater and uh, uh, there's a long line. Right? Well, you just know if you want to go to the movie, you wait in the back of the line and wait your turn to buy a ticket. If you haven't already purchased your ticket, you don't bust into the front of the line. And no one designed this rule. You're not going to look in. In, in, the, in the US Constitution or any laws passed in Canada or by the United Nations and find, well, you know, thou shalt not cut in line. No one, does, it's just a rule we follow. It's a very simple rule that we follow. Another favorite example of mine of this is during the holidays, again, pre-COVID when people used to go to the mall, and let's assume it happened again, you go to the mall and you're looking for, you know, parking is scarce. And so, you know, you're, 
you're 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 driving around the parking lot and finally you see someone about to pull out and so you I want that parking spot so what do you do you pull up your car behind that person and you stop you might push your turning signal on in the direction of where that person's pulling out of and that tells other people who also want a parking spot that no this parking spot has been claimed and no one designed that but it's a it's a very simple rule for allocating a very scarce resource in that case in this case parking spaces in a, in, a, in a shopping mall. So our world's planted thick with these kinds of rules that we follow, that no one designed. Hayek said, that's law. And, and the more important of these rules uh, are ones that when they cause conflict, uh, the, 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 the people who are in dispute will actually take it to a court. Now, in the past, a lot of these courts were private. Uh, in, in more recent times, some of the past several centuries, the courts have been run by government. But still, you go to you go to a common law court in England. You go to a, uh, a a state court or a local court in the United States, even though it's a government court. Basically, the the, the, the typical judge or jury uh, is not looking at a statute book. Then, well, you know, uh, Rosemary and Don got into a dispute over the terms of a contract. There's no good guy, bad guy. Mm-hmm. You thought the contract, you thought the term of the contract meant X. I thought it meant Y. Both reasonable, perhaps. And then what Hayek says the courts would do is, uh, okay, there's no good guy, bad guy here. Uh, so what, what is the most, what, what is the interpretation of that contract that is most likely the one that most people in that community would believe, would, would, would accept? And then the person who acted according to that particular interpretation is the person who wins the case. And so then, so we get the common law then begins to instantiate these social expectations and then you know they they get they get written down and recorded in 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 cases in in, in case books but but hayek says and I, I think he's unquestionably correct the vast majority of the rules that we follow in society were not designed by anyone they they just emerged from our interactions with each other and that's law and legislation is on top of that and hayek warned that and again i think he's entirely correct hayek warned that to mistake legislation for law courts grave error. Uh, uh, there's a place for legislation in Hayek's view, uh, but the two are different. And law has a certain deserved majesty about it because it's the evolved rules of the way people in a community expect each other to behave. Legislation doesn't have a deserved majesty. It's simply an expedient that the community, usually through its representatives, Say, well, we want to, you know, we want we want this outcome, we want that outcome, we're going to tax you in order to provide mosquito control or whatever. Um, and it, so it may be worthwhile, but it's not the same thing. And, and so Hayek, Hayek warned, and maybe here I'm reading too much into Hayek, but I've taken this warning that when we call legislators lawmakers, we give them a role in our lives that that they in fact don't play and that it's dangerous to them to suppose that they do play. So before we end our conversation today, I want to get into a little bit about Hayek's work on business cycles and Mm -hmm. and inflation, because that's one thing we haven't talked about yet, Um, but it is an important part of his work. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about what Hayek thought causes economic booms and busts and and if inflation plays a role in this yes yes so this is hayek's earliest work I mean, his earliest um 
work as a theoretical economist was uh, he was a monetary economist, a monetary economist who uh, uh, looked at the role that money played, that, that, that manipulating the money supply played in affecting business cycles. So his theory, it's called the Austrian business cycle theory. He didn't make it up exclusively. It, it, you know, Ludwig von Mises played an important role in this. More recently, scholars such as Roger Garrison, I think, have advanced it in a in a very uh, uh, creative and and productive way. Uh, but Hayek basically said, "Look, uh, in a modern economy, the, the the only as we talked about earlier, the only signals people have to go on is, is prices. And so when they see prices move, they respond to those." Price when price of tin goes up, well, they buy less tin and they buy more aluminum. Uh, Hayek said, "Well, when the when the monetary authority injects money into the economy, it creates false signals, very much in the same way, but not exactly as price controls. So the the, the in the United States, the Federal Reserve increases the supply of dollars. Well, that's going to cause some prices." denominated in dollars to rise first. The dollar is, it's not helicopter money, as we say now, it's all the prices don't rise immediately. Some people get the money first. Well, they're gonna spend that money first. That's gonna cause the prices of the things money is first spent on to rise before, uh, to, to rise first. That's gonna send out a false signal, says Hyde. People are gonna look at those rising prices and say, oh, let's, let's say they're first spending it on tin. Oh, tin is now more, more scarce and, and, and more value. I think I'll go into tin production because People want more tin, but people don't really want more tin. It's just that the, the Federal Reserve, in this example, injected money into the economy in a way that caused uh, where that new money was spent on tin. Uh, and uh, as the money works its way through the economy, prices of other things will rise and eventually catch up with the rise in the price of tin. But before that happens, Hayek says people misread the rising prices uh, as 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 a signal that that the goods whose prices are rising are now in more demand. Particularly, he paid attention to the interest rate. When, when, when the government injects new money to the economy, the earliest version of this argument is that it artificially lowers the rate of interest, artificially sends out signals that the amount of savings that people are naturally putting into the economy has increased. And yes. so that sends out a signal to investors that, okay, well, we can now we can now, there'll be a there'll stream of savings forthcoming so that we can make longer term investments in bigger factories. And, uh, but it's not true. It's just a, this, these are false signals sent out by money manipulation. Um, and, and so this money manipulation causes a distortion in the way resources are allocated. Those distortions will eventually be recognized. And the people making these investments that looked good when they were first made discover that, well, in fact, these investments are not profitable. So they're going to liquidate those investments. And as they liquidate those investments, uh, there'll be a resulting unemployment. Uh, and and it, so in the time it takes from the from the time that the misallocation of uh, malinvestment of resources is discovered uh, and the investors liquidate the bad investments, causing unemployment until the time when the, the workers uh, and the resources find new and better employments. That's the downside of the, of the business cycle. Now, I have to say that uh, when Hayek was at his, when, when, when he was at the peak of writing this stuff in the mid 19, early mid 1930s, 
he and John Maynard Keynes, who was still alive then, um, were considered, they, they were the two most influential economists alive. And the Hayekian theory of the trade cycle competed with what soon became the Keynesian theory of the trade cycle, a very different theory that was promulgated when John Maynard Keynes published his famous book in 1936. And uh, uh, the, the great Nobel Prize winning economist John Hicks, who's certainly no Hayekian, uh, uh, but it was alive at the time. Uh, he says, you know, back in back then, meaning the you know mid and late thirties, we didn't know. I'm paraphrasing. We didn't know if it would be Hayek or Keynes whose theory would win. Well, Keynes's theory won won the day, and then later on, you know, we had we had monetarism with, with, with Milton Friedman, and and, and, that, and that's been modified. So Hayek's trade cycle theory uh, has pretty much been out of favor with the vast majority of economists for ninety years now. Um, I still think there's a lot of explanatory power to it, although I don't think that it is sufficient to explain uh, the, 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 the full length and depth of, for example, the Great Depression. For that, I think you need the work of Robert Higgs, um, who talked about regime uncertainty, but that's a whole nother, yes. whole nother discussion. Yeah, so I think um, Hayek's explanation is very good at explaining certain business cycles that we experience, but not all of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so hopefully in the second part of our conversation, we can continue this, talk about maybe which uh, recent business cycles his theory does explain, get into some other questions about um, you know, what other kinds of price distortions might affect uh, mm -hmm. our human flourishing. So um, I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Don, and I will talk to you again. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to Essential Scholars, a new podcast series that explores the ideas and insights of some of history's most influential thinkers. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe and head over to essentialscholars.org to learn more. See you next time. Thank you.